Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back, my friends, to the Pilgrimage Podcast for those waking up to the wonder in all things, celebrating truth and beauty, seeking to live fully here, fully present, fully human. Uh, I'm excited about jumping into this episode. Before I do, I want to tell you about a couple things I've got going on. Um, You may or may not know I just dropped a new project. It's a mixtape. It's called Beats and Pieces Volume 1. And uh, I want to tell you a bit about this project because it's special. I've been actually creating another project, another EP that um, was sort of, you know, gearing up to be like my official release of this year, putting a lot of energy and thought and administration into it. And uh, during the process, I just realized that I wasn't in love with it. I wasn't, but I wasn't in love with the music, but I wasn't in love with the process of creating it. And I took a step back and I realized, you know, I think it's because I've attached a lot of agenda to my creative work and you know agenda isn't bad there's a there's a process to creating and you have goals and you have hopes and dreams for it and so agenda sneaks its way in there but I realized actually I think for quite a lot of time agenda has taken the place of affection you know there's been an agenda to do something rather than just an affection for doing it and uh spent some time with my family um and I just had this memory of when I was a little little boy not a little boy I was a teenager I was probably about 12 or 13 and um I was struggling at school I was finding it difficult to concentrate I've got this what I call a triple threat dyslexia dyspraxia and ADHD so I was a bit of a nightmare for my teachers and I'd come home and uh, my parents were very kind and they created a space for me in the house where I just had a keyboard and a laptop and I just make beats I just make beats for so many hours at a time and I'd start rapping over the beats and I was falling in love with hip-hop at at that moment in my life and I'd spend hours in there and it was this little moment of falling in love with making music, falling in love with the creative process, falling in love with the idea of I could do something and say something and make something and share it with the world. And you know, nothing existed then that exists now in the sense of Spotify and even iTunes and stuff. So, you know, my dreams were just like making CDs and cassette tapes. Wow. And, um, but I was just in love with the process, man. I just absolutely loved it. And, um, and so this is a week ago, no, like two weeks ago. I thought, you know what? I need to reconnect with that 13, 14 year old boy who wasn't doing this to make an income. Who wasn't doing this to get on Spotify New Music Friday. Who wasn't doing this to try and get some publisher's attention. Who wasn't doing this to try and get some famous guy's attention for validation. But was doing this because he loved doing it. And so, um, my wife went away for a week, Kara, my wife went away back home in Canada. And so uh, I basically spent a week, not even a week, four days. We wake up in the morning, hit the gym, come home, have some breakfast, do about an hour or two of admin. And then around 10 a.m., I'd get into the studio, the studio being my spare room. And I would just write and create probably until one in the morning each day. I did this for three, four days straight. And along the way, I was like, oh my goodness, I'm falling in love. I could feel those butterflies of affection for creating, just stirring in me again. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to put this out into the world. I'm going to fulfill the dream of that of that 14-year-old boy. I'm going to put this out into the world. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to upload it, and I'm not going to do any promo before I do it. I'm just going to upload it and, um, and see what happens and do it for the joy of just making music. And so I, I, I text my friend Nathan. I was like, Nathan, if I send you some tracks, like six, seven tracks, can you mix it tonight? 
And then I found this illustrator on Instagram that I love called Ash and, and asked her if she would do the cover. And within four days, four days, the whole project was done. I uploaded it on Friday night. Then on Wednesday, a couple of days ago on Wednesday, I'm in rehearsals practicing for a show and I get this ping on my phone. It's my friend and he's like, yo, bro, I love the new project. And I didn't even know it dropped. That's how disconnected I was from the kind of process of like the campaign and like getting this music out there. I forgot that, you know, that it was even coming out. And so it dropped and I was like, oh my goodness, it's out. So I started, you know, put a little post up on Instagram and that's been it. Beats and Pieces Volume 1 is out now for the love of creating. And, uh, you know, my hope with it, my only really hope with this project is that when you listen to it, you might fall back in love with, uh, with yourself with the world around you, with whatever you put your hands to, with whatever you're doing. I don't know, whether you're a musician or a midwife, you just fall back in love with, oh my goodness, I got into this for a reason, for a purpose, not just for an agenda. Um, I think ultimately we all do things um, out of purpose and passion and along the way, you know, the, the, the financial implications of it or the other surrounding pressures of it can kind of take us away from that initial affection. So I hope this project just brings up an affection in your life that somehow transcends agenda. So that's Beats and Pieces Volume 1 out. The other thing that I've just launched, I'm letting you know first, Pilgrimage Podcast subscribers, is I've just launched a Patreon page. Many of you will know about Patreon. It's a phenomenal platform for creators to sustain what they're doing, sustained by the people who enjoy what they're doing and appreciate what they're doing. I'm an independent artist. Uh, I make music independently, podcasts independently, or poems independently. What I mean by that is I've got no financial backing for doing this. Um, I do it out of the love and the sheer passion for doing it. I want to put work out into the world that speaks into the chaos and um patreon is a way that we can engage and be more collaborative and connected in the way that i create um so you can go check out my patreon page it's patreon.com forward slash joshua luke smith if you become a patreon if you pledge towards my work there's a ton of crazy cool benefits um that include they include uh coaching one-to-one coaching with me about Finding your creative voice, finding the uh, the words and the um, the work that you were meant to put out into the world. It includes uh, merchandise, tickets. It includes Google Hangouts. I'm launching a, uh, a side element to it all called Agop, which is a gathering of poets. And this is this is a, a, a kind of a community that you'll be invited into as becoming a Patreon. And the idea isn't we're going to learn how to put pen to paper. It's more we're going to learn how to see the world as poetry, a gathering of poets. So if you become a patron, you get invited into this AGOP community, this gathering of poets, and there's tons of different ways that I'll be engaging with that. So please go and check it out, patreon.com forward slash Joshua Luke Smith. But without further ado, let's get on to this next episode. Uh, this episode is called The Art of Being Alone, and um, something that's been stirring in me for the best part of a year process I've been on and I wanted to share it with you. I'm calling this a sermonette because I'm doing this in the style and in the art of a sermon. I'm getting into some ancient scriptures and um, if you're sat here listening to this being like, oh man, sermon, I'm about to switch off. Please don't. Just stay with me. 
the sermon is a is a manner of performance art. It's a manner of poetry. It's a manner of um, exploring and exporting ancient, ancient, ancient ideas and um, understanding of the world in new ways. And and I want to do that today. So I'm going to look at a scripture. Uh, it doesn't matter if you've ever read the Bible or not, but I'm going to dig into it. It's a scripture out of uh, the book of Matthew, verse 14, sorry, chapter 14. And um, it's a very, very powerful bit of text. So I'm going to read it to you right now. And then I'm going to just share some thoughts on it that I have, that I hope and I pray might be some level of encouragement to you, a pilgrim, because that's what we are. We're all pilgrims. We're all journeying. We're all walking somewhere. We don't even all know where we're going, but we know there's a destination ahead of us. And the power of being a pilgrim is that you you come into this understanding that the transformation happens en route, not when you arrive. And uh, so this is, this is a sermonette for the pilgrims. So this is Matthew 14. It said this, after John's death, John the Baptist we're talking about here. After John's death, Jesus heard the news and he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. John the Baptist was uh, a relative of Jesus. He was one of his best friends. So this is heavy, heavy news. So he withdrew from, a, from, from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard where he was going, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he arrived and got ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. This is really powerful because Jesus is basically just hearing that one of his boys, one of his guys is dead. And uh, this isn't a, this, this guy hasn't died of illness. John was murdered, brutally murdered. And Jesus has just found this out and, uh, and he's devastated. And so he's leaving where he currently is to find a place of emptiness. It says a desolate place, which means fruitless, a place of barrenness, a place where he can be utterly alone to grieve and meet with God and pray and, and be alone. And when he gets there, the crowds have got there first. And it says this, but when he saw them, he had compassion on them and he healed them. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and he said, Jesus, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away and go into the village and buy food for themselves. Send them away so they can go go and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So they said to him, for Jesus... We only have five loaves here and two fish. And so he said, and this is such a sick line, he said, bring them to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and they were satisfied. And then he took up 12 baskets, baskets full of leftover broken pieces. And all of those who ate were about 5,000 men plus women and children. And then immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side whilst he dismissed the crowds. Last verse. And when he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Oh, this is a sick, 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 sick bit of scripture. I'm going to just jump into a few thoughts I have on it that have been very helpful for me. Um, So Jesus heals that his best friend, one of his best friends is dead. And he is understandably grief stricken and devastated. And he chooses, he chooses in that place of deep emotion and pain. He chooses to take himself away 
to a desolate place. If you look up the word desolate, it says fruitless and barren. He takes himself to a place where nothing will distract him from his emotional state. That's powerful. That's very challenging. I find that if I'm faced with pain and if I'm faced with a with an overwhelming sense of emotion, I tend to distract myself rather than take myself to somewhere that's desolate where I have to face it. And I've been in a, in a season in the last year or so of grief. We've, we've recently lost people that has been incredibly painful. And um, it's been a real struggle and a real tension to avoid distraction. It's never been easier than right now in history to be distracted. I don't even know you need to go into it. You all know it. We all know that we pick up our phones and we start scrolling till we look comatose just so we can be numbed so we don't have to deal with what's in front of us. And that can be dealing with just the, the, the bits of pain and frustration that we have that we find happens in a day or it could be an overwhelming sense of trauma or, or, or past disappointment that we just want to escape from. But Jesus shows us a new way. And this is the power of looking at the life of Jesus for, for our life today. Jesus is always showing us a new way, a deeper way, a better story to live out. Jesus chooses with his grief to go to a desolate place. Why? Because he wants to meet with God and he wants to feast with God. He wants to find peace with God and he wants to do so in a way that nothing else could ever take the credit for. He wants to meet with God and receive a healing and receive a, a state of peace that will never be able to be credited to anything other them being with the divine, with God in whom all things are held together, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who breathed existence into being, God. And that's such a wake-up call for us. What does it look like to take your pain and take your emotional state and say, I want to be in a place where nothing else could get the credit for what happens next, for the peace that comes. So I never can run to a different source. I can never go anywhere other than, than in the presence of God into a place of meditative peace and silence to find true solace and oasis. That's so powerful. So the first, the first thing that comes to mind here in this in this process that I'm going to call the art of being alone, the first thing that comes to mind is we need to find a way to, um, to take distractions out of our pursuit of finding desolate places. Take these distractions out of our pursuit of finding desolate places. What do I need to do today, this week, this month, and this year to, ri to rid myself of distraction? I'm going to keep going because it just gets even better. Um, he gets there though. He gets to the place of where he wants to find peace and solace. And he wants to have like nothingness. He wants to have fruitlessness and barrenness. He wants to have a desolate place. But when he gets there, the crowd have already beaten him there and they're already in his space and i don't know about you but i am an introvert and if i find like i just went to a coffee shop this morning and my prayer was god i pray that there's no one there that i know who could distract me because <laughs> i want to be alone i want to buy my coffee i want to sit read my book for an hour i don't want to get interrupted and um if i if i got interrupted my i'm going to be frustrated because i'm an introvert and i want to recharge on my own so i know the introverts listening to this will connect with it but even if you're not you know that feeling of 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 having a having a desire and having a a, a place that you want to get to that just isn't uh, interrupted or corrupted by anyone else and jesus is in grief he's in pain and he arrives to this place where he wants to meet with God on his own. And there's people there. And not only is there people there, there's people that require something 
of him. And we learn something about leadership in this because Jesus' first response to his pain is to take himself away to a desolate place. So the first thing that we see as a leader is Jesus is saying, my pain and my emotion matters and it's worthy of, of, of separation. It's worthy of, of changing the, the, the agenda for the day. It's worthy of, of readapting my timetable. I'm going away for a while. That's the first thing we learn. That's the first thing we learn. You got you to you put, put worth and value on what you feel. No matter le- what level of leadership or, or authority you have, you matter. Your heart matters. So take yourself away. Find a space and time to break. You know, to, to, to feel it, to be in it, to break, to have tears, to, to wail if you need to wail, to, to, to find a part of your heart that you can't find if you're, if you're performing or if you're leading or if you're, if, you're, if you're always the person that people are looking to. You need to find a space where you can be broken and where you can be healed. That's the first thing we learn. But the second thing we learn is that when Jesus gets interrupted, his response is to have compassion to have compassion and to heal the people. And this is so profound because my response, I think would probably be frustration rather than compassion. And I think the reason of that is is this, and this is all hidden in, in this text. Jesus is taking himself to a place to meet with God and he knows that God's heart for him is full of compassion. Otherwise, he wouldn't allow himself to be alone with God. Sometimes we don't want to be alone with God because we don't believe that if it's just us and God, the overwhelming sense that we'll have is his compassion towards us. We more feel like it would be his condemnation towards us, so we don't desire to be alone with him. But Jesus knows that his father is good, loving, and kind. So when Jesus is alone with God, he knows he's going to be filled up. He's going to be set free and he knows that he's going to feel an overwhelming sense of compassion and loving tenderness from his father. So when he gets to that place and he sees people that are broken, he automatically has compassion for them because he is aware that God has compassion for him. We cannot give what we don't have. We cannot take people where we haven't been. And it's so, so powerful. I, I, I tend not to have compassion for people based on the appetite that I have to receive compassion from God for myself. So if we're not taking ourselves away to desolate places, it's usually because we don't think that when we get there and we're, we're alone with God, we're going to be met with kindness. And therefore, when we get interrupted, it's rare that we have kindness for others. Does that make sense? So... That's really, really powerful and that's really, really helpful of like, okay, if I want to become a compassionate person and I want to be someone who can be interrupted, and let me tell you, I've got a podcast coming, an episode coming called There Is No Interruptions, which I'm excited about, a little preview. Um, but if we want to be, be somewhere where when we get uh, interrupted, we feel like we have something to give in generosity and kindness, we have to begin by prioritizing the place, the prioritizing the place where we can receive compassion and kindness. Um, and then we get this really interesting conversation. His followers come up to him and they're like, all right, Jesus, you've been healing people and you've been setting them free, but it's time to eat. <laughs> and they're hungry. The sun is setting. This is a desolate place just to remind you. And I think you should send the crowds away so that they can eat. And his response is this. They need not go away. You give them something to eat. But Jesus, we only have five loaves and two fish. And then he said, bring them to me. All right. Why did Jesus see something that the disciples, his followers couldn't see? They only saw a desolate place. They only saw lack. 
Jesus had a different opinion and perspective. Why? He had already defined the desolate place as the space where he would meet with God and feast with God. So when they saw lack, he saw a table ready to be laid. Why? He had already redefined that place as a a space where his soul was going to receive from God. So the lack that they saw in their hands was transcended by the fullness that he had in his heart. When they came to him and said, but we only have this, he said, bring them to me. Because when you bring it to me, I'll transform it because I've transformed this desolate place as into a decadent place in my heart. Are you with me still? All right. We can't give someone something from our hands that we don't already hold in our hearts. Jesus hadn't even received from God yet in the way that he was expecting to, right? But he had already set a precedent as this is the place where I am going to feast with God, where my soul will be fed, where my grief will be heard, where I will meet with the divine one who holds all things together. So when you come to me with lack, I'm going to respond with fullness. And then he takes the, uh, the, the loaves and fishes and it says he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. This is so, so powerful. What is in your hand is defined by what's in your heart. And sometimes the manifestation of that or the physical act that reveals that is when you hold what's in your hand. And I'm talking about food here. It could be. You, talk, you hold what's in your hand right now, right? Your life, your dreams, your relationships, your marriage, your finances, everything. What's in your hand right now? What is in your hand that you look at and you see lacking? Maybe it is your relationships. Maybe there's so much tension and there's so much confusion and there's so much lack of connection. All you can feel is lack in your relationships. Maybe it is your dreams, your hopes, your purposes, where you feel like nothing's going right. No doors are opening. All I see is lack. All I feel is lack. Feel is lack. Maybe it's your soul. Maybe when you think about yourself, you feel overwhelmed with a sense of lack. Jesus holds this mere offering, this picnic, this packed lunch in his hand. And he holds it up above him. He holds it up to above him. It says he holds it towards heaven and he says a blessing. Sometimes we have to hold up to heaven the mere offering that we have on earth to receive a different perspective on it. And sometimes we have to bless that which we think isn't enough right? Sometimes we have to just bless it. Sometimes that's all you can do. Sometimes there isn't a five-step plan to get out of a situation. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is redefine it with a new perspective. And in Jesus, he shows us that begins in how we steward our own souls. He says, there isn't a place on earth so desolate, so broken, so dry, so barren that I can't meet God there. So there is no place on this earth where I can't feed others. Because if I can be fed wherever I am, then I can feed others wherever I am. The disciples said, we only have this. There is no only in the vocabulary of Jesus. And there is no only in the vocabulary of the person who lives fully present, fully here and fully human. Because we don't live with a sense of lack. We don't live with a sense of entitlement. We live with a sense of gratitude where we hold everything in our hands as a gift. So when Jesus said a blessing, he was announcing gratitude. I bless this because I believe that this is more than what's just in my hands. It's been redefined by the gratitude that I hold in my heart. Let me tell you three things about gratitude. 
First one, gratitude is the enemy of entitlement. Gratitude opposes entitlement. Entitlement is the sense that you deserve what's coming to you, that you deserve more than you have, that maybe you deserve what others have. Entitlement is the sense that you have a right to something. Gratitude doesn't work like that. Gratitude says everything is a gift. And if I get this, if I get this, then it's because of someone else's effort. It's because of someone else's hard work. It's because someone else has gone before me. So if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I get that, but I'm here because of my effort. <laughs> I, I went to university. I got in a graduate scheme. I've now got this job. I got this promotion. It's because of my work. I want to challenge it by saying, yeah, but the very fact that you have the mind capacity and the intelligence to do that, which you're doing is a gift. And if you receive everything that you have in your hands as a gift, you'll be more present with it. Entitlement robs you of seeing your life as a blessing. Entitlement robs you of realizing this is all inheritance. Inheritance is receiving the reward of someone else's effort. And we have to recognize that our whole universe is set up in the, in the, in the way of inheritance and not entitlement. Everything we have is a gift. Every, it says in James, every good and perfect thing is a gift from the Father of lights in whom there are no shifting shadows. Every stage that I get to be on, every track that I get to spit on is a gift. And the fact that it's a gift means that every time I do it, I get to receive it again rather than feel like I have to take it again. Like I'm going to take this opportunity. No, no. I'm going to receive this opportunity. And you know what happens then? You become more rested in what you're doing. The fight becomes less of, of, of what's, what's driving you. And it becomes more of a fulfilled sense of peace and being. It says in Hebrews, strive to enter the rest of God. That's crazy. That the one time we're commanded to strive is into rest. It's like the ancient teachers of wisdom know this. We have a disposition towards earning and fighting and wrestling and hustling and working. It's what we do. It's who we are in many respects. So the ancient wisdom teachers say, strive to enter rest because that's where fulfillment is. You don't need to strive to become more tenacious. You need to strive to become more rested. Rest and faith are interlocked because when you rest, you're recognizing something is going to be done in your behalf because you're not doing it. That's why the Sabbath, the rest day is so important. It's a laying down of, of your, your ability to have the credit for everything good that happens in your life. Perhaps, perhaps the universe isn't indifferent. Perhaps it's benevolent. Perhaps there's this pulsing kindness that transcends all that we do and is directed towards who we are. And when we recognize it, we start living a little bit more full of joy because hey, Oh, this microphone I'm, I'm speaking into right now is a gift. The light coming through the window, shining on the back of my neck is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Breathe in. Breathe out. It's a gift. All right, so that's the first thing. Gratitude is the enemy of entitlement. Gratitude opposes entitlement. 
The second thing is this. Gratitude always finds an ex- a point of expression. Gratitude always finds a point of expression. For, so for Jesus, it was to say a blessing over the, over the picnic and turn, turning it into a feast that fed thousands. Your gratitude looks and sounds like something. There's a story in the scriptures, it's Luke 19, I believe, where uh, Jesus and his disciples are strutting into town and his disciples are dancing and they're rejoicing and they're saying, we have seen the sick healed. We have seen the oppressed set free. We have seen great and wondrous things and we are rejoicing because of it, giving thanksgiving. And some guys come up and they say, Jesus, shut those men up. They look ridiculous. Tell them to be silent. Jesus turns around and he says, look, If I tell them to be silent, then the very rocks will cry out. This is powerful. The very order of creation is set towards gratitude. The very order of creation is set towards gratitude because God pronounced over creation, this is good. So if we stay silent, then the very rocks below us will cry out. If we stay silent, if we don't expect, if we don't express our gratitude, inanimate objects will fulfill our calling, our commission, and our purpose. Perhaps our greatest purpose in this world is to be grateful. Perhaps when we do that, we fulfill the order of all things. The third thing about gratitude is it's a gift for transformation. When Jesus blessed the loaves and the fishes, when he was grateful for it, when he held it under the light of heaven, not just under the perspective of earth, it transformed into a feast. So as you become more and more grateful, You're setting yourself up for something of transformation in your life. Transformation is the enemy of entitlement. It opposes your right to things. Transformation, um, gratitude always finds a point of expression. It looks and sounds like something. And in doing those two things, gratitude becomes this gift for transformation. When you rob yourself of entitlement, when you deny your right to something, when you lay down your rights, when you say, no one owes me anything, no one owes me anything. God has given me everything. So no one owes me anything. And when you say, I'm going to start rejoicing and I'm going to start practicing gratitude and saying thank you, then you start seeing transformation in your life. You start seeing things turn from picnics into feasts. You start seeing relationships flourished. Start seeing relationships flourishing because you start holding them under a different perspective. Not just your own. But what does heaven say about this situation? What does heaven say about this person? Ask that question. What does heaven say about this person? Maybe heaven says that this person, although I find them very frustrating, and though I find them very negative, heaven says about this person, they're doing the best they can with what they have. Wow, you might then start being a little bit more grateful for them in your life. I know that's worked for me. And the power of this whole story is it begins with Jesus in his grief, saying, I am going to spend some time on my own. And so I wrote this down in my journal a little while ago. The art of being alone, the art of being alone, and learning to practice the art of being alone, learning to be disciplined with the art of being alone, learning to be a craftsman, in the art of being alone, leads me to a place of gratitude and as a result, true fulfillment. There's a story I want to tell you. It's about a man who made an appointment with the, uh, the famous psychologist Carl Jung. He wanted to get help for his chronic depression. And Jung told him to reduce his 14-hour workday to eight and then go directly home and spend the evenings in his study, quiet and all alone. The depressed man went to a study each night and he shut the door. 
He read a little bit. He listened to, listened to some music, put on some Mozart, some Chopin, read some Ernest, Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. After weeks of this, he returned back to Young, complaining that he saw no improvement. But on learning how the man spent his time, Young said, but you didn't understand. I didn't want you to be with those people, with Mozart and Chopin, with Hemingway. I wanted you to be completely alone. I wanted you to learn the art of being alone. The man looked terrified and exclaimed, I can't think of any worse company. And Young replied, Yet this is the self that you inflict on other people 14 hours a day. And Young might have added, The self that you inflict on yourself. Jeez, that's powerful. The art of being alone is the process of recognizing that when it's just you and it's just God, there is kindness and there's compassion, there's tenderness, benevolence, there's love and affection pulsing, directed towards you. And until we receive it for ourselves, until we love ourselves, we cannot love our neighbors. We cannot have compassion on others. We cannot receive the transformative gift of gratitude until we first recognize that when it's just us, when we're all alone, there are good things to be received. So in practice of the art of being alone, um, you know, I want to encourage you just to make very simple but very extravagant decisions this week um, to find desolate places where you would often be surrounded by crowds, you know. And for us, the crowd of our life is is technology. Uh, it's, you know, the constant barrage of just email and, and connection at the cost of true, true fulfillment. And uh, so for me, that has looked like very simple things like charging my phone downstairs so I can go to sleep and wake up in the morning without um, another hundred different things that distract me from my original thoughts and how I feel about the day. And... Um, you know, this, this whole idea of being alone is scary for a lot of people and has definitely been intimidating for me because when you're alone with yourself, you have to face who you really are. You know, I heard, heard someone say recently, who you are when no one's watching is who you are, you know, and that's, that can be terrifying. And so I, I want to leave you with this thought. Um, you probably heard it said that God loves you and it's true. Uh, but that can become a very sort of dry theological statement. I want to encourage you to engage with this thought. Not only does God love you, not only are you loved by God, but right now in this moment, listening to this podcast, wherever you are, wherever you're doing, you are being loved by God. It's proactive. It's engaged. It's not passive. You are being loved by God. The divine mystery that holds all things together. There is a pulsing benevolence kindness and affection directed towards you yes you your soul with all of the fear and the shame and the control that's going around your mind and your heart at the moment you are being loved you are seen and known and it's only with that reality in mind that i think we can start really practicing the art of being alone and finding fulfillment within it finding a place to face our fears Perfect love casts out fears. That means perfect love doesn't ask fear to leave politely. It casts it out. But we have to find a sense of at least um, peace in the invitation of being alone. That when we're alone, 
with ourselves and with God, we won't find you know, the other end of that conversation, there's condemnation. No, it's the opposite. There is compassion and acceptance. So I, I want to close with a, with a benediction um, credited to St. Francis, who's one of my heroes. If you know me, you'll, uh, you'll know I got, I got him tattooed on my arm and I wear him around my neck. I just, I love the guy. I think he, he embodies so much of who I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and uh, this benediction wasn't necessarily written by him, but it's credited to him and his order and his practice, the Franciscan way, because it exemplifies who he was and what he was about. And I want to say in closing as a commission and as a charge to us all. So, um, all right, listeners of the pilgrimage podcast here we go may god bless you with discomfort at easy answers half truths and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart may god bless you with anger anger at injustice oppression and the exploitation of people so that you may walk for justice freedom and peace and may god bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and to turn their joy, sorry, their pain into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. Amen.